0: We want to think about this passage in First uh, John chapter 4. It's a great love chapter, much like 1 Corinthians 13 as we come to First John 4. There is a story of a great Swiss theologian of the last century and his uh, visit to North America. This was a number of years back. The scholar had published many books with weighty and challenging theological reflection. In fact, most pastors would never read the books that he wrote because they were too hard to read. Theologians, Other theologians would have to dumb it down so that pastors could read it and understand what he was writing about. But during his American visit, this European pastor was asked, what is the greatest truth that you have ever learned? And his answer, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The simplest and the most profound truth we will learn in the Christian faith is, Jesus loves me, this I know. Some of you discovered this truth decades ago but you're still swimming in the waters and you're still trying to understand more of that love. Some of you are here and it's perhaps just this year that you're really starting to discover that truth for yourself. But I am confident of this, that for many of you, if not all of you, you have learned this truth because someone else loved you first. It's hard for us to believe that, that God loves us, if we haven't felt loved by at least one other person. Someone loved us first. Well, my mom was that kind of formative faith shaper for me. And as you read the book of, say, 2 Timothy, you'll see that Timothy loved Jesus because of the faith and love that his mom had for him. We don't ever hear anything about Paul, the Apostle Paul and his mother, and he wrote a lot. But it is interesting that if you read through the 16th chapter of the book of Romans, you'll see how this fiercely independent apostle, this great teacher of the faith, this man who stood up so strongly, he said, he gave a series of greetings, and a greetings also then to Rufus' mother. And then his words were, She is also a mother to me. Maybe some of you have not had as great or a long term connection with your own mom, but there's somebody else maybe in your life where you'd look and say, that person was a mom to me. Moms, grandmas, you have a vital role in loving your kids and your grandkids into the kingdom. When you give unconditional love and acceptance to them, they are getting their very first taste of what God's love is like. That is important work. That is valuable kingdom work. That is an incredible task. Besides, mom turned upside down spells. Wow. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms who are here. Wow. Wow. Amazing work. Well, if you haven't looked already or turned in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, I invite you to do so now because it's there we're going to camp out and look at a series of verses. 1 John chapter 4, and we look first of all to verse 19. And the verse is this We love because he first loved us. Here's the reason why anyone can love at all. The father declared his love to the son first before he did any miracles and before he started his public teaching ministry. Another story. Jesus' story of the prodigal son is shocking because here is the respectable, dignified father who takes the lead by first running to his wayward son and welcoming him home with an embrace of love. We love because he first loved us. Here is good news. Jesus loves you long before you did anything good. Jesus loves you long before you did anything heroic or amazing. God is the one who takes the lead. We love because he first loved us. Why does God love us first? Shouldn't we have to prove why we deserve such love? Shouldn't we have to show it? John simply writes, God is love. If you look at the text, look first of all at verse 8. We read this very short phrase, God is love, twice in the chapter in the in chapter 4. First of all in verse 8, you see it there, God is love. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And then again in verse 16. Just look down a little further, verse 16, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. In fact, the author of this little letter, John, is quite repetitive, isn't he? 27 times. 14 verses, 27 times. He uses the word love or some form of the word love. It's like, well, I get that already. Tell me something else. According to an old tradition, one of John's disciples complained to him about this. It was Jerome who wrote this story in the fourth century, but he was writing this tradition that he had heard passed down to him where the disciples of John came up to him and said, why don't you talk about anything else? And he answered, because there isn't anything else. Do you ever wonder what God was doing before he made the world? Great theologians have an answer. Since God is love, he was loving. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always been in this perfect relationship of love Some of the church fathers called it the dance of the Trinity, this ancient dance of love. Now some people don't think of God like this, that God is a God of love. Dorothy Sayers wrote this, the God of Christians is often looked upon as an old gentleman of irritable nerves who beats people up for whistling. I think if you read some of the scholars today who are critiquing God, They'll use words like that, saying, if there is a God, it's a malevolent God. God is not good, a title of a book that you have seen. But in this little book of First John, John calls us regularly children of God, the beloved of God. This is how John identifies us. Most of the time we're identified by our non-relational labels, plant manager, banker, Computer systems analyst, lab technician, engineer, any job that we have. Or maybe we're identified in ways like this. Smart, cute, stupid, muscular, ugly. What are the words that might be attached to that as well? But John knows that since God is a personal God, a relational God. He gives us labels identified by our relationship with God. And he says, you are beloved. You are a child of God. Do you delight in this? Are you ready to delight in this today? The triune God has loved you first. God's gift of love is ours for the taking. God is love. God is not a salesperson. God is not an accountant. Heaven is free because God's love is free. All that is needed is our yes. Yes, Lord, I receive your love for me. When we say God is love, we are saying that all of his activity is loving activity. So he made the world. Why? Why did God make the world? Because he loves us and he wants to share a relationship with us. He corrects us because he loves us. His correction is not to get you. It is because he loves you. Even when God judges, he judges in love. It is not, oh, there's this other side of God, this mean-spirited side of God. It's like, no, even when God offers judgment, that judgment is given in love. John says that God is love. John is saying that knowing God better will help you to understand love. This God is love. So there's that phrase, God is love. But John never flips the sentence around and says, Love is God. That doesn't work, does it? Even though it's kind of, you might think of it's the equal sign, love equals God, or God is love, therefore love equals God. But it doesn't work that way. For those of you who study philosophy, you know that you can't just jump one way and the other way to do that. John is saying, you know your human imperfect experiences of love that's not God. It's nonsense to think that. It's like saying, um, mom is sick. But you can't flip that around and say, sick is mom. I guess maybe you could if you had a different meaning to that as well. But that, it, it changes the whole meaning. It's something very different. The word love is such a slippery word, isn't it? Slippery word. Hard to understand. Uh, you know that in the Greek language there are four words for love. You know, have you ever heard that um, the Inuit have 17 different words for snow? 17 words because living in a place where they are always around snow, you need the fine descriptive words. And, and we might have a few, right? We'll say slush they have 17 words to describe it. Love is a slippery word. Let me try to explain what I mean with an illustration. Here's the illustration. There is no such thing as a counterfeit paperclip. Why should anyone want to create a counterfeit for cheap things? You don't, right? That would be silly. You don't take something inexpensive or no value and then create a counterfeit of it. You only take those things that are very valuable and you try to counterfeit. What is? The, I had to look it up on Wikipedia. The greatest thing that is counterfeited is purses. No, you know what? It's close. It's there, but money, money, money is still there. As uh, you're right, purses can be counterfeited. You bet. You bet. Okay. Um, thank you, and pens too, that is. That was also on Wikipedia. Thank you. Is there another list that you're going to give to us, Lana? Um, uh, people counterfeit money because they try to sell off something fake as the real thing. Have you ever gone to a store and you tried to pay with a $50 bill or a $100 bill? Some stores say this, we just won't accept them, right? Or other stores, uh, they have to pass it under a scanner and just, just to make sure that it's the real deal. And, and you know the effort of the Canadian government to produce bills that can't be counterfeited so that you can look up and so that they, they can't be photocopied. Okay, Some people, my friends have tried this, maybe I've tried this, you can't make a photocopy of the bills anymore it doesn't work right because there's that see-through plastic part and why why would they not accept bills at stores because they're afraid of getting a nice colorful piece of paper that has no value now the bible says the greatest is love you can be sure you can be sure that there will be attempted counterfeits. We will all be tempted to believe in moments or in seasons that something is greater than God's love and something is more valuable than that. Right? Satan, in fact, tempted Jesus with those things. He's going to tempt you with those things as well. Saint, Satan tempted Jesus turn these stones, turn this stone into bread. And really he was saying, I want you to love God's gifts more than God himself. Or, or, or throw yourself down from the temple. If you do that, see, I want you to love human praise more than God's praise. Or, or um, just fall down before Satan. Love the wrong path rather than the way of obedience. All of these are false loves. There are false loves, and there are also false promises about love. Have you ever talked with people who say, I am giving up on church, and why? Often it's not because the church is too far away and they just don't want to drive there anymore, or it's often even that they didn't like the music and there's lots of controversy about music, and it's, and it's not even that they stopped believing You know, I don't think people leave because they would say, or that's not the primary reason, I just stop believing now. It is because they were disappointed with the unloving behavior of someone else in the community. And they say, if that's what church is, then I want nothing to do with that. So let's say this. Anyone who joins a church expecting happiness and harmony with every person here, every Sunday, every week, every day, you are in for some disappointment. I like what Philip Yancey said. I rejected the church for a time because I found so little grace there. I returned because I found grace nowhere else. So John is trying to say, here's the real deal about love. Take a look at verse 10. Verse 10 says this, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The ultimate measure of love is God's saving work through Jesus Christ. If you ever really want to talk about what love is, we must talk about God's saving work through Jesus Christ. God's love is not a message of, well, let's all just be nice people and get along. God's love does not look at your pain or your hurt or your sin and say, well, let's just pretend that never happened. Did you know that Bible teachers debate a lot about what is the central attribute of God? If there is one attribute, one key quality of who God is, if you could put it in one word, what is it? And so some say, it's holiness. God is holy. And they would refer to those passages in Isaiah, Isaiah 6, when the angels are before the throne of God and they are around the throne of God, and they are not saying love, 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 but they are saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So some theologians look at that text, and then they'll carry it over into Revelation again, where it says God is holy, God is holy, that statement of the holiness of God. And it's true. We stand in the presence of a holy God who is good and right in all his ways. But others then enter into the debate and they'll say, wait a minute, the central attribute of God is his love. His love is the central quality of it all. They'll look to verses and they'll say, wait a minute, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And then thinking of what we've looked at just in 1 John chapter 4, where it is recited and said so clearly, God is love. God is love. It's something that's repeated, pounded, pressed through God is love, that landmark verse. But it's here in verse 10 that we see God's holy love. He is absolutely committed to the hard path of restoring lost relationships through offering his very life. His love led him obediently to the cross, and some people call it Holy love. As Sam and Frodo journey on their quest into Mordor and in the Lord of the Rings, Sam asks, I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. I wonder, said Frodo, but I don't know. And that's the way of a real tale. Take any one that you're fond of. You may know or guess what kind of tale it is. Happy ending or sad ending, but the people in it don't no. But the Bible does let us know what kind of story we're in, because it's written not just by the human characters, but by the divine author as well. He writes his part in the story too. Not only was Moses in this story, the disciple John in this story, God figures into the story as an actor in the play And then we, too, are in the story. Why to think of it? We're still in the same tale. It's still going on, said Sam. And then he asked, don't the great tales never end? No, they never end as tales, said Frodo. But the people in them come and go, and when their parts ended, our part will end later or sooner. What kind of story are we in? I am convinced that we are in a love story. It's a daring thing to believe that God's love is present in each part of the story. Because I know, and you know, if you've lived long enough, you've seen beautiful parts of the story, but you've also seen dark parts of the story. And you say, is that a part of the love story too of God? The suffering. The hardships the grief, the pain, even the death. God is ready to take those two and to redeem them and to fill them with his love. There is a mystery to this. We suffer and God still loves us. But I take hope as I think of the mystery of Christ's suffering love for me. What helps to give me some sense to my own suffering is to think that the God who loved me has suffered for me so much by going to the cross for me. But another question. If love is all there is, then why should God give us commandments? Think of the Ten Commandments. They're the most famous list of laws in history of humanity. Most everyone has heard of them. If I were to ask you what the Ten Commandments were, could you state them? One church I know of, they uh, decided to go out onto the streets and to do this man-on-the-street interview, and to go up to people and to ask them about the Ten Commandments. And as they came up with a microphone in hand and somebody holding the camera, they said, can you tell us what the Ten Commandments are? Do You think... That any of them could say all ten of them. Well, everybody that they went to, not one person could say all ten of the Ten Commandments. Most of them got two, and they mostly jumped to the "thou shalt not" ones, including "you shall not steal," "you shall not kill," "you shall not commit adultery." You shall not lie. So, four of the ten. They mostly gravitated to those four and picked two of those. So, these commands are still valid for us today. They're not something to be discarded. They're not the ten suggestions. But, but there is a preamble to the commandments and maybe we don't think as much about the preamble as we do the Ten Commandments themselves. And as you're holding your hand in First uh, John 4, let's think about Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. Here's what God said. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, notice this, that God does not say, I am the Lord, the God. But God says, I am the Lord, your God. It's almost as if he has a relationship with them even before the commandments are given. God gave the Ten Commandments to a group of people who were slaves on the run. These slaves had nothing to offer God. The same thing that we have to offer God, nothing. But before God gives any of the commandments, before a commandment is given, he says, I am the Lord, your God. You are my people. I have led you out of slavery. I've had a deep love for you long before today. I am watching over you and I have guarded you every step of the way. In the Jewish understanding of the Ten Commandments, they are never called the Ten Commandments by the Jewish community. They are called uh, the Ten Sayings, or the Ten Words, or the Ten Declarations, but not the Ten Commandments. And, for the Jewish community commandments 1 and 2 are put together as one because we know there's 10 words or 10 sayings or 10 commandments the Jewish community puts together commandments 1 and 2 you shall have no other gods before me and you shall not make for yourself a graven image and they put it together in one just basically saying commandment or word number 2 is is that and those two ideas put together But the first one, the first word, the first saying that they have is what we count as the preamble. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So maybe that's why they call it the ten words because that first word is not even a commandment. It's simply a statement of a relationship. It's a statement of a promise that is already given to them. I am with you. I am going to guide you on this process. And because you now know the relationship that you're in, here are the commandments that I am going to give to you. Verses 1 and 2 are a key to understanding the rest of the story. Even here in the Old Testament story of rules, love comes first. We love because he first loves us. This discovery has shaped me in my understanding of the Christian story, to understand that God's love is actively at work even in the Ten Commandments, even in the rules that are given to his people. It's always begun with the word of love. God knew that rules without relationships lead to rebellion, so the rules were given only after a relationship was established. He gave ten commandments. The first four lead us into a love for God. The next six lead us into a love for others. I want you to notice, though, that as we think of 1 John chapter 4, the only command that's given is love. That's the command. One command, reduced, all, all brought into one. Look at verse 21. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother and sister. Notice this. Being loved by God is your identity, but that's not all. When you are loved by God, then you become a person who can love you become a person who must love. God gives the command of love to those who are his beloved. Right? 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another. It's, it's that. You who are loved, let us love. That's why there's so many love words that tie into that text. So the main goal. The main goal of every sermon that you hear the main goal of every Bible study that you do is not to make you smarter. Hopefully we will learn more. Hopefully we do grow become smarter. But the goal is to make us better lovers. That's the goal. That you might become a greater lover. Sometimes it's an idea or a thought that will help us to love more. Simply just thinking a new thought or thinking in a different way can help you to love more. Other times, it's a call to take an action step that will help you to love more. It's interesting that when John wrote that book, 1 John, he knew that we would fail in our efforts to love. He says it over and over, but he knew that we would fail. At the beginning of his letter, he writes... In chapter 1, verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We will let others down and others will also hurt us. But the goal to love speaks of nothing short of the pursuit of a new community. We are in this great experimental project of being this new community that learns to love each other very well. We are commanded to make love our lifelong pursuit, even though it will always be flawed. We've talked about how John is rather repetitive on his message of love. Maybe he's trying to communicate that this is going to take a long time. It's going to take us a while. Nobody can rush or hurry this final product of loving one another. Even though it is slow work, we do not give up. So how do you love your mom on Mother's Day? How do you love your neighbor later today? And your work colleague tomorrow afternoon? How do you love those who are in your small group later this week? God doesn't give you a checklist of 50 things that you have to do. Maybe that would be nice. Then I could know I've done it all, right? Take out the garbage, check. That's not a bad thing. That's a good way to love. But there's another checkmark. Another, another. To love is creative and personal. It is unique to your own situation. No one else is gifted like you. No one else is in the situation that you are in. No one else will ever be you. So you get to figure it out. To love is something that you get to creatively figure out after the sermon this morning, this afternoon, this week. So give yourself Holy to this God who loves you. Risk. Be crazy. Hold nothing back. Tell God that you want him more than anything else on this earth. And that you want to obey his one commandment. To love him fully. You join together with me in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are here in this place and that you are the one who loves us first and that we'll never get it straight if we don't figure that out first, that even our actions of love are not performance-based but simply a response to what you have done for us. We thank you for this beautiful passage of Scripture, repetitive as it is, that keeps bringing us back to the goal of swimming more deeply in that love that you have for us. But now, we pray that you would guide us in the work of love. We thank you for these moments. As we sing, may we respond with uniting ourselves in that blessed bond of love with one another. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.